Chapter Four of Shadows in Zambula by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Shadows in Zambula, Chapter Four, Dance, Girl, Dance. When Zabibi was jerked head first through the aperture which opened in the wall behind the idol, her first dizzy, disconnected thought was that her time had come. She instinctively shut her eyes and waited for the blow to fall, but instead she felt herself dumped unceremoniously onto the smooth marble floor, which bruised her knees and hip. Opening her eyes she stared fearfully around her, just as a muffled impact sounded from beyond the wall. She saw a brown-skinned giant in a loincloth standing over her, and across the chamber into which she had come a man sat on a divan with his back to a rich velvet curtain, a broad, fleshy man, with fat white hands and snaky eyes. And her flesh crawled, for this man was Tatrasmek, the priest of Hanuman, who for years had spun his slimy webs of power throughout the city of Zambula. "'The barbarian seeks to batter his way through the wall,' said Tatrasmek sardonically. But the bolt will hold." The girl saw that a heavy golden bolt had been shot across the hidden door, which was plainly discernible from this side of the wall. The bolt and its sockets would have resisted the charge of an elephant. "'Go open one of the doors for him, Baltior,' ordered Tatrasmek. "'Slay him in the square chamber at the other end of the corridor.' The Kosalan salaamed and departed by the way of a door in the side wall of the chamber. Zabibi rose, staring fearfully at the priest, whose eyes ran avidly over her splendid figure. To this she was indifferent. A dancer of Zambula was accustomed to nakedness. But the cruelty in his eyes started her limbs to quivering. "'Again you come to me in my retreat, beautiful one.' he purred with cynical hypocrisy. It is an unexpected honor. You seem to enjoy your former visit so little that I dared not hope for you to repeat it. Yet I did all in my power to provide you with an interesting experience." For a Zambulan dancer to blush would be an impossibility, but a smolder of anger mingled with the fear in Zabibi's dilated eyes. Fat pig. You know I did not come here for love of you." "'No,' laughed Tatrasmek. "'You came like a fool, creeping through the night with a stupid barbarian to cut my throat. Why should you seek my life?' "'You know why,' she cried, knowing the futility of trying to dissemble. "'You are thinking of your lover,' he laughed. "'The fact that you are here seeking my life shows that he quaffed the drug I gave you. Well, did you not ask for it? And did I not send what you asked for, out of the love I bear you?" "'I asked you for a drug that would make him slumber harmlessly for a few hours,' she said bitterly. "'And you, you sent your servant with a drug that drove him mad. I was a fool ever to trust you. I might have known your protestations of friendship were lies to disguise your hate and spite." "'Why did you wish your lover to sleep?' he retorted. 
so you could steal from him the only thing he would never give you, the ring with the jewel men call the Star of Korala, the star stolen from the Queen of Ophir, who would pay a roomful of gold for its return. He would not give it to you willingly, because he knew that it holds a magic which, when properly controlled, would enslave the hearts of any of the opposite sex. You wish to steal it from him, fearing that his magicians would discover the key to that magic, and he would forget you in his conquests of the queens of the world. You would sell it back to the queen of Ophir, who understands its power, and would use it to enslave men, as she did before it was stolen. And why did you want it?" she demanded sulkily. I understand its powers. It would increase the power of my arts. Well, she snapped, you have it now. I have the star of Korala. Nay, you err. Why bother to lie? she retorted bitterly. He had it on his finger when he drove me into the streets. He did not have it when I found him again. Your servant must have been watching the house, and have taken it from him after I escaped him. To the devil with it! I want my lover back, sane and whole. You have the ring. You have punished us both. Why do you not restore his mind to him? Can you?" I could, he assured her, in evident enjoyment of her distress. He drew a file from among his robes. This contains the juice of the golden lotus. If your lover drank it, he would be sane again. Yes, I will be merciful. You have been thwarted and flouted me, not once, but many times. He has constantly opposed my wishes. But I will be merciful. Come and take the file from my hand. She stared at Tatrasmek, trembling with eagerness to seize it, but fearing it was but some cruel jest. She advanced timidly, with a hand extended, and he laughed heartlessly and drew back out of her reach. Even as her lips parted to curse him, some instinct snatched her eyes upward. From the gilded ceiling four jade-hued vessels were falling. She dodged, but they did not strike her they crashed to the floor about her, forming the four corners of a square. And she screamed and screamed again. For out of each ruin reared the hooded head of a cobra, and one struck at her bare leg. Her convulsive movement to evade it brought her within reach of the one on the other side, and again she had to shift like lightning to avoid the flash of its hideous head. She was caught in a frightful trap. All four serpents were swaying and striking at foot, ankle, calf, knee, thigh, hip, whatever portion of her voluptuous body chanced to be nearest to them, and she could not spring over them or pass between them to safety. She could only whirl and spring aside and twist her body to avoid the strokes, and each time she moved to dodge one snake the motion brought her within range of another so that she had to keep shifting with the speed of light. She could move only a short space in any direction, and the fearful hooded crests were menacing her every second. Only a dancer of Zambula could have lived in that grisly square.
she became herself a blur of bewildering motion. The heads missed her by hair's breadths, but they missed, as she pitted her twinkling feet, flickering limbs, and perfect eye against the blinding speed of the scaly demons her enemy had conjured out of thin air. Somewhere a thin whining music struck up, mingling with the hissing of the serpents, like an evil night-wind blowing through the empty sockets of a skull. Even in the flying speed of her urgent haste she realized that the darting of the serpents was no longer at random. They obeyed the grisly piping of the eerie music. They struck with a horrible rhythm, and perforce her swaying, writhing, spinning body attuned itself to their rhythm. Her frantic motions melted into the measures of a dance compared to which the most obscene tarantella of Zamora would have seemed sane and restrained. Sick with shame and terror, Sabibi heard the hateful mirth of her merciless tormentor. "'The dance of the cobras, my lovely one!' laughed Tatrasmek. "'So maidens danced in the sacrifice to Hanuman centuries ago, but never with such beauty and suppleness. Dance, girl, dance!' How long can you avoid the fangs of the poison people? Minutes? Hours? You will weary at last. Your swift, sure feet will stumble, your legs falter, your hips slow in their rotations. Then the fangs will begin to sink deep into your ivory flesh." Behind him the curtain shook as if struck by a gust of wind, and Tatrasmek screamed. His eyes dilated, and his hands caught convulsively at the length of bright steel which jutted suddenly from his breast. The music broke off short. The girl swayed dizzily in her dance, crying out in dreadful anticipation of the flickering fangs. And then only four wisps of harmless blue smoke curled up from the floor about her, as Tatrasmek sprawled headlong from the divan. Conan came from behind the curtain, wiping his broad blade. Looking through the hangings, he had seen the girl dancing desperately between four swaying spirals of smoke, but he had guessed that their appearance was very different to her. He knew he had killed Tatrasmek. Zabibi sank down on the floor, panting, but even as Conan started toward her she staggered up again though her legs trembled with exhaustion. "'The file!' she gasped. "'The file!' Tatrasmek still grasped it in his stiffening hand. Ruthlessly she tore it from his locked fingers, and then began frantically to ransack his garments. "'What the devil are you looking for?' Conan demanded. "'A ring. He stole it from Alafdal. He must have.' while my lover walked in madness through the streets. Sets, devils!" She had convinced herself that it was not on the person of Tatrasmek. She began to cast about the chamber, tearing up divan covers and hangings and upsetting vessels. She paused and raked a damp lock of hair out of her eyes. "'I forgot Baltior!' "'He's in hell with his neck broken.' Conan assured her. She expressed vindictive gratification at the news, but an instant later swore expressively. 
We can't stay here. It's not many hours until dawn. Lesser priests are likely to visit the temple at any hour of the night. And if we're discovered here with his corpse, the people would tear us to pieces. The Turanians could not save us." She lifted the bolt on the secret door, and a few moments later they were in the streets and hurrying away from the silent square where brooded the age-old shrine of Hanuman. In a winding street a short distance away, Conan halted and checked his companion with a heavy hand on her naked shoulder. "'Don't forget, there was a price.' "'I have not forgotten,' she twisted free. "'But we must go to—to to Alafdal first. A few minutes later the black slave let them through the wicket door. The young Turanian lay upon the divan, his arms and legs bound with heavy velvet ropes. His eyes were open, but they were like those of a mad dog, and foam was thick on his lips. Zabibi shuddered. "'Force his jaws open!' she commanded, and Conan's iron fingers accomplished the task. Zabibi emptied the phial down the maniac's gullet. The effect was like magic. Instantly he became quiet. The glare faded from his eyes. He stared up at the girl in a puzzled way but with recognition and intelligence. Then he fell into a normal slumber. "'When he awakes, he will be quite sane,' she whispered, motioning to the silent slave. With a deep bow he gave into her hands a small leathern bag, and drew about her shoulders a silken cloak. Her manner had subtly changed when she beckoned Conan to follow her out of the chamber. In an arch that opened on the street she turned to him, drawing herself up with a new regality. "'I must now tell you the truth,' she said. "'I am not Zabibi. I am Nafertari. And he is not Alafdal, a poor captain of the guardsmen. He is Jungar Khan, satrap of Zambula.' Conan made no comment. His scarred, dark countenance was immobile. I lied to you because I dared not divulge the truth to anyone," she said. We were alone when Jongir Khan went mad. None knew of it but myself. Had it been known that the satrap of Zambula was a madman, there would have been instant revolt and rioting, even as Tatras Mek planned, who plotted our destruction. You see now how impossible is the reward for which you hoped. The satrap's mistress is not, cannot be for you. But you shall not go unrewarded. Here is a sack of gold." She gave him the bag she had received from the slave. "'Go now, and when the sun is come up to the palace, I will have Jongir Khan make you captain of his guard. But you will take your orders from me secretly. Your first duty will be to march a squad to the shrine of Hanuman ostensibly to search for clues of the priest's slayer, in reality to search for the star of Korala. It must be hidden there somewhere. When you find it, bring it to me. You have my leave to go now." He nodded, still silent, and strode away. The girl, watching the swing of his broad shoulders, was piqued to note that there was nothing in his bearing to show that he was in any way chagrined or abashed. When he had rounded a corner he glanced back, and then changed his direction and quickened his pace. 
A few moments later he was in the quarter of the city containing the horse-market. There he smote on a door until from the window above a bearded head was thrust to demand the reason for the disturbance. "'A horse,' demanded Conan, "'the swiftest steed you have.' "'I open no gates at this time of night,' grumbled the horse-trader. Conan rattled his coins. "'Dog's son, knave! Don't you see I'm white and alone? Come down before I smash your door!' Presently on a bay stallion Conan was riding toward the house of Aram Baksh. He turned off the road into the alley that lay between the tavern compound and the date-palm garden, but he did not pause at the gate. He rode on to the northeast corner of the wall, then turned and rode along the north wall, to halt within a few paces of the northwest angle. No trees grew near the wall, but there were some low bushes. To one of these he tied his horse, and was about to climb into the saddle again when he heard a low muttering of voices beyond the corner of the wall. Drawing his foot from the stirrup, he stole to the angle and peered around it. Three men were moving down the road toward the palm groves, and from their slouching gait he knew they were negroes. They halted at his low call, bunching themselves as he strode toward them, his sword in his hand. Their eyes gleamed whitely in the starlight. Their brutish lust shone in their ebony faces, but they knew their three cudgels could not prevail against his sword, just as he knew it. "'Where are you going?' he challenged. "'To bid our brothers put out the fire in the pit beyond the groves,' was the sullen, guttural reply. Arambaksh promised us a man, but he lied. We found one of our brothers dead in the trap-chamber. We go hungry this night." "'I think not,' smiled Conan. "'Arambaksh will give you a man. Do you see that door?' He pointed to a small iron-bound portal set in the midst of the western wall. "'Wait there. Arambaksh will give you a man.' Backing warily away, until he was out of reach of a sudden bludgeon-blow, he turned and melted around the northwest angle of the wall. Reaching his horse, he paused to ascertain that the blacks were not sneaking after him, and then he climbed into the saddle and stood upright on it, quieting the uneasy steed with a low word. He reached up, grasped the coping of the wall, and drew himself up and over. There he studied the grounds for an instant. The tavern was built in the southwest corner of the enclosure, the remaining space of which was occupied by groves and gardens. He saw no one in the grounds. The tavern was dark and silent, and he knew all the doors and windows were barred and bolted. Conan knew that Arambaksh slept in a chamber that opened into a cypress-bordered path that led to the door in the western wall. Like a shadow, he glided among the trees, and a few moments later he rapped lightly on the chamber door. "'What is it?' asked a rumbling voice within. "'Arambaksh!' hissed Conan. "'The blacks are stealing over the wall!' Almost instantly the door opened, framing the tavern-keeper, naked but for his shirt, with a dagger in his hand. He craned his neck to stare into the Cimmerian's face. "'What tale is this? You!' 
Conan's vengeful fingers strangled a yell in his throat. They went to the floor together, and Conan wrenched the dagger from his enemy's hand. The blade glinted in the starlight, and blood spurted. Akram Bash made hideous noises, gasping and gagging on a mouthful of blood. Conan dragged him to his feet, and again the dagger slashed, and most of the curly beard fell to the floor. Still gripping his captive's throat, for a man can scream incoherently even with his tongue slit, Conan dragged him out of the dark chamber and down the cypress-shadowed path to the iron-bound door in the outer wall. With one hand he lifted the bolt and threw the door open, disclosing the three shadowy figures which waited like black vultures outside. Into their eager arms Conan thrust the innkeeper. A horrible, blood-choked scream rose from the Zambulin's throat, but there was no response from the silent tavern. The people there were used to screams outside the wall. Aram Baksh fought like a wild man, his distended eyes turned frantically on the Sumerian's face. He found no mercy there. Conan was thinking of the scores of wretches who owed their bloody doom to this man's greed. In glee the negroes dragged him down the road, mocking his frenzied gibberings. How could they recognize Aram Baksh in this half-naked, blood-stained figure, with the grotesquely shorn beard and unintelligible babblings? The sounds of the struggle came back to Conan, standing beside the gate, even after the clump of figures had vanished among the palms. Closing the door behind him, Conan returned to his horse mounted and turned westward, toward the open desert, swinging wide to skirt the sinister belt of palm-groves. As he rode, he drew from his belt a ring in which gleamed a jewel that snarled the starlight in a shimmering iridescence. He held it up to admire it, turning it this way and that. The compact bag of gold pieces clinked gently at his saddle-bow like a promise of the greater riches to come. I wonder what she'd say if she knew I recognized her as Nefertari and him as Jungir Khan the instant I saw them," he mused. I knew the Star of Kerala, too. There'll be a fine scene if she ever guesses that I slipped it off his finger while I was tying him with his sword-belt. But they'll never catch me with the start I'm getting." He glanced back at the shadowy palm-groves, among which a red glare was mounting. A chanting rose to the night, vibrating with savage exultation. And another sound mingled with it, a mad, incoherent screaming, a frenzied gibbering in which no words could be distinguished. The noise followed Conan as he rode westward beneath the paling stars. The End of Shadows in Zambula by Robert E. Howard